Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And today, we're talking about grizzly bears, or rather, the lack thereof. Grizzly bears used to live throughout the Cascade Mountain region in Washington state, but today, they virtually disappeared from the state's borders. So where did they go? And more importantly, will they come back? If you haven't seen the video, you might take a few moments to watch it. It'll make this conversation more interesting and relevant. And you can find the video in the show notes or on crosscut.com. But for now, bear with us. Knut, what spurred you on the journey for this particular episode of Mossbacks Northwest? What was the inspiration? Well, I've been reading stories, both on Crosscut by Hannah Weinberger, who's covered grizzly bears for us, among other wild creatures. And I get press releases from various organizations. And I've been fascinated with the idea of bringing grizzly bears back to the North Cascades. And um, grizzly bear sightings there have been exceedingly rare in recent years. There's a photograph from, I think, 2010 that shows the profile with the characteristic hump of a grizzly bear on a, on a distant ridge. Um, the last bona fide in-person sighting of a grizzly there was, I think, in 1996. So we know that grizzly bears have existed there. There probably are still some there, but very few. And then the Selkirk Range, which is on the other side of the state, the border of Idaho, Washington, and, and Canada, there are a few grizzlies over that away. But basically, Washington is a grizzly-free zone. And, you know, biologists have been looking at reintroducing or have reintroduced uh, fishers and looking at other species reintroduced into the environment, that ones that have been extirpated in the past. And, you know, the grizzly bear, that seems like a big endeavor. So what is that about? Before we talk about supposed reintroduction of grizzly bears to uh, the North Cascades, let's talk about the history. What is the history of the grizzly bear in the North Cascades, as far as we know? Yeah, well, that was what really interested me, was um, were grizzly bears found more widely in what is now Washington in earlier times? And, you know, part of the argument for reintroducing them to the North Cascades is, one, they're still there, but two, historically, they were there. And uh, so what is that history? And how do we know what we know about it? So that got me looking at sort of the history of the Euro-American explorers and their first encounters with grizzly bears. Did Lewis and Clark encounter grizzlies on their adventures? They did. Yes, they did. And in fact, they're responsible for a lot of what we think of when we think about grizzly bears. So when they were uh, coming west, when they got to eastern Montana, they had heard from um, tribes that they had encountered earlier that there was a thing called a grizzly bear that was really big. And um, then they began to see footprints and they could see the size of the claws. They had seen uh, indigenous people wearing necklaces made of grizzly bear claws, and these were highly, highly valued. So they knew that there was a 
darn big bear out there <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and uh, when they got to eastern Montana, they began to encounter them. And in fact, the first bear encounter, which is written about uh, by uh, William Clark, um, he and a companion uh, came across a bear. Of course, their instinct was shoot it. <laughs> um, they were hunting for food. They were, of course, asked to by Thomas Jefferson to keep their eye out for new species. And um, so they shot and killed uh, a grizzly. And it took <laughs> uh, many, many, you know, musket balls to bring one down. And that was their first real look at a grizzly in terms of how it looked physically. Um, of course, they butchered it and ate it. And then they began to encounter other grizzly bears along the way. Now, many of these encounters were in prairie environments. You don't really think of grizzly bears today being in the prairies, but back then, because of the large buffalo herds and, and uh, no very low population, the grizzlies were. And they weren't even sure in the beginning what species they were looking at because grizzly bears came in all kinds of colors. There were brown grizzly bears, which is what we think of, but some of them often had either blonde or silver tips. Um, did they name the bear the grizzly? Where did the name grizzly bear come from, and what does it mean? Grizzly means something like a salt and pepper beard, and that was sort of the original way of describing their coloration. Um, but uh, it also sounds like grizzly, like horrible, like a grizzly murder kind like of thing. What what any encounter with such a creature would result in. Exactly. And, of course, their encounters were pretty violent, both in the sense of them being afraid of the bears, them having the firepower to kill the bears, often the incentive to kill them because they wanted either to study them uh, but or eat them. Uh, Lewis and Clark loved bear fat. Uh, because it hardened like lard, so it became like the, the grease that they did all their cooking in. Um, so they kind of developed an appetite, but they were curious about the grizzly and how it was like the black bear and, and different. But when they came back from their expedition and reported about the grizzly bear, um, the grizzly became a kind of um, more grizzly killer than, you know— and uh, the name stuck. So did they encounter grizzlies as they continued west into Idaho and Washington? The, well, in, into Idaho they did, but once they got sort of the other side of the mountains down into the Columbia River country, they didn't encounter a grizzly all the way to the Pacific coast. There were, they, there were no grizzlies there as far as they were concerned. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons, because historically, one, we know from archaeological evidence that many thousands of years ago, there were grizzlies in the Puget Sound area. There uh, was a fossil grizzly bones found on Whidbey Island, of all places. And there were some occasional anecdotal accounts of people coming across a, a, a large bear. But basically, they were absent. And this has been a little bit of a mystery because grizzlies can exist in lots of different habitats. They can live on the prairie. They can live in the dry side of the mountains. They can uh, live in the, the lush mountain meadows. 
and forests. And um, if they love salmon, what better uh, habitat than the Columbia River right, basin? Right, and the rivers that feed it. But um, at the time, at least, so we're talking about the very early 19th century, there wasn't any evidence that there was a grizzly population there. Now, that may have been because the indigenous population was very large. What baffles me is they were pretty absent from the Cascades from about Mount Rainier south. Yet grizzlies were native to the Sierras in California. And they went all the way down to Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona. They lived in some fairly dry, arid environments. Why the Cascades were empty of grizzlies at that time, I don't think anybody knows. So Oregon doesn't have any grizzlies? They had very few. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that folks looking at reintroduction is, well, what was the history of grizzlies in the North Cascades? And are there other th- documents that we can look at that would tell us something about that? So researchers dug into the existing archives of the Hudson Bay Company to take one. There were more fur trading companies, but they were the big. And they looked at the records of pelts traded at various forts that bracketed the Cascades, basically. So you're talking about uh, Fort Nez Pierce, which is in Walla Walla, was in what's now Walla Walla, Fort Nisqually, Fort Colville, Um, forts in British Columbia. And what they found was grizzly pelts were rarely traded through these places. This is in the, you know, first sort of 30 years of the 19th century fur trade. But there were thousands of them that were traded through Fort Colville, which is on that would be on the east side of the North Cascades. So there's evidence that there was a significant grizzly population within the range of some of these uh, trading posts. But we don't know where those, any of those pelts originally came from. No. The fact that they were traded doesn't mean origin. That's right. They could have come from uh, much further away. Although the fact that there's so many came through Colville and so few came through the other fort suggests that maybe they were getting them from Montana what's now British Columbia, but also the Cascade region. And we know certainly by the late 19th century that there were bears in the North Cascades. There were grizzly bears in the North Cascades. So where do grizzly bears currently live in the Pacific Northwest and how how many? What, what do we know? Well, there are very few. So the North Cascades may be two or three grizzlies. I mean, we're talking about a huge area, right? And, um, and there have been rarely, but have been some sightings. So that grizzly population is very small. Um, the Selkirk Mountains on the other end of the state the Canadian, Idaho, and Washington border, that area has some grizzlies in the Selkirk Mountains. So, you know, they're they're probably totally, yeah, I don't know, maybe dozens, <laughs> but not very many. Why did grizzlies disappear? Was it human interaction, 
or was it something else? Well, we, we certainly know why they disappeared largely from the North Cascades, because there are photographs of uh, uh, bears, grizzly bear skins on the side of barns up in the Stahican Valley. There are newspaper accounts where um, it, it says explicitly that in the North Cascades, in the Baker Range, there's a, you know, a, a bunch of grizzly bears up there. So what you're seeing is settlers moving in. They're moving into areas that border their ha the grizzly habitat, and they're hunting them out. They're killing them either for their pelts or their fur. They're killing them um, because uh, they want to raise livestock. The settlers basically looked at the grizzlies as a threat and, and acted proactively to get rid of them. And so this was true throughout much of the West, was just a systematic elimination of every grizzly you came across. And what and what about indigenous tribes? What was what is the relationship between natives and grizzlies historic historically as far as you know? First of all, we know that just taking the the Salish language and its variants, there were always different words for grizzly bears and black bears. So we know that they were known they were encountered. We know that their claws were traded. And this, this includes the uh, North Coast peoples of, of um, Canada. You see grizzly bears incorporated into dance, costumes, masks, story poles. The grizzly's image is part of this you know, pantheon of the wild natural world that's very common. So they're talking about grizzlies. And then we know that certain people um, had grizzly bear as part of their diet. Uh, the upper Skagit, for example, who would inhabit um, traditionally that area of the North Cascades, um, including west side and over, over into the east side of the mountains, grizzly bear is listed among the um, traditional foods. So on that point, we talked to Scott Schuyler of the Upper Skagit tribe about his people's relationship with the grizzly, and here's what he had to say. Well, you know, from a holistic approach in our, in our people, there's three tribes on the Skagit, and I think we all have the same values. And the value that, that we have is, is on every creature has its place in the ecosystem. They have a right to be there. And we have an inherent obligation, a moral obligation, if you would, uh, to ensure that these creatures are protected and sustained. You know, at one point, uh, we were trying, uh, people tried to drive us out of the landscape just as the grizzly bears were driven out of their landscape. And so it's a personal thing for our people to, to ensure that these animals uh, come back and are protected. They need respect, just as we need to respect. And, and uh, when people don't respect their, their territory or, or, or the, uh, the animals themselves, then we have issues and the animals are driven off or, or lethally removed. And uh, we just need to ensure that, you know, as we move forward and animals do come back, that they're provided the adequate respect that they deserve, just as we all do. 
you know, we believe these, these creatures are our relatives. In our history, in our belief system, we had what was called transformers, and the transformers would take the shape of animals, and, and they were part of a religious belief system. And so in that aspect, they, do, they, do, they are important to us from a religious historic standpoint and, and remain important to us to this very day. There are rumors about grizzlies maybe making a return to Washington state. What's that about? Where is this happening? Who's trying to make it happen? Well, it's something the federal government is looking into, and a lot of organizations that are the North Cascades Institute, the National uh, Park Conservation Council. There, there are many groups that are very supportive of bringing grizzlies back. U.S. wildlife officials and the National Park Service also want to bring grizzly bears back to the North Cascades. Ghost Gadget reporting the agencies unveiled the first part of their plan to Skagit commissioners and will be They have a real impact on the ecosystems that they're part of, a positive impact. And the argument is, you know, let's try to bring this wild area of the North Cascades 10,000 square miles. It's it's it is virtually the only grizzly bear habitat in the lower 48 capable of sustaining uh, a reintroduced grizzly population of some size. And the benefits to the ecosystem have, have to do with, you know, uh, making sure that deer populations don't get too big. Um, and a lot of it has to do with their poop. Um, you know, the berries they eat, the plants they eat, uh, they spread those seeds and whatnot throughout the ecosystem. So the I think the idea that they can help bring the ecosystem back to a kind of uh, natural equilibrium is one of the driving arguments. The other other arguments include they're good for tourism. Uh, People want to see grizzlies. Well, that brings up the interaction between humans and grizzlies. Who is afraid and who is opposed to the idea of grizzly reintroduction? Well, I think there are a lot of skeptics, and it it goes back to farmers and ranchers, people who might live on the edges of grizzly bear territory. And um, whether it's in Wyoming or Montana, there have been grizzlies that have decided to feast on cattle. the introduction or reintroduction of wolves into the Pacific Northwest has generated controversy. Um, the wolf population seem to be doing pretty well, um, but there there are you know ranchers and others who are you know dead set against that. So it's been very controversial. There's also the sense of public safety. There are people who argue, well, we're making the woods less safe for hikers. Um, you know, there's a lot of great hiking in the North Cascades. Do you really want those people now to have to fear a grizzly attack? Is there a debate about how ferocious grizzlies really are? And, and could you say that the, the idea that grizzlies and humans cannot coexist is an ir- irrational fear? Yeah, well, I think <laughs> a lot of it depends on human behavior, not grizzly behavior. Right. So I saw a film clip recently of a whole bunch of people at Yellowstone getting out of their car and running toward a grizzly bear and her cubs. You know, they tell you time and time again, don't get out of the car. Don't approach the wildlife. But you have also in parks, you know, grizzly bears that don't come become habituated to eating 
human garbage or, or seeing humans as uh, potential food sources, um, coexistence is possible. And certainly, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with um, learning how to hike or camp in bear country, you know, in terms of how to, how to keep your food, how to, um, you know, hiking with the bear bells or, or um, carrying bear spray. Although if you're having to use bear spray, your encounter is too close. Your encounter is too close. <laughs> right. Yeah. What is the good advice uh, for someone who encounters a black bear or a grizzly bear on a trail or has an encounter? I think they're, they're different techniques. You can't outrun a grizzly. If it, if it wants to get you, it's going to get you. There's actually an account in the Lewis and Clark book of a guy being followed by a grizzly, and he's convinced the grizzly wants to eat him. And so, you know, he goes down this trail, hikes like a mile, and the grizzly's following him. And he walks into a lake to protect himself. And modern grizzly people reading that account says, the bear wanted to know about you. It wasn't going to eat you because it galloped like a horse. You know, if it wanted to kill you, it would have taken care of you. So... The other joke about it, of course, is, you know, if you're with, with other people, you just need to run faster than the people you're with or the person that you're with, you know, to escape a grizzly. It's true that, you know, a grizzly has, is not interested in you unless it feels threatened. Threatened, yeah. Or unless it has cubs or around. Or its cubs are threatened, yeah. Uh, or its food source is threatened or something like that. They, they don't want to be involved with you any more than you want to be involved with them. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was a series of bear attacks in the 1960s at Glacier that taught the Park Service and other people a lot about that because these grizzlies were, you know, some of these grizzlies were habituated to coming up to some of the chateaus or chalets, rather, and eating human garbage and food and that kind of thing. And so that's why they're so careful to, to make sure that they, you know, don't let them get at your food. Don't let them get habituated. And so they want people to see grizzlies. They just don't want them interacting with them. I did, it does remind me of one funny thing that happened when we were at Glacier. So we went into a ranger station to get some bear spray. The ranger was like, well, you, you guys know how to use the spray, right? You know, and we're like, yeah, we do. Well, the ranger said, I just, I just had to check because um, not long ago, I sold a can of bear spray to a woman, uh, you know, from New York. And her, she and her kids were going to go hiking with the bear. And I sold her the bear spray and she left. And suddenly I heard screaming in the parking lot. And we ran out and she had sprayed her children with the bear spray, thinking it was like bug spray, like <laughs> bear repellent. And <laughs> Just so we know, bear spray is very spicy pepper spray. It's not to be sprayed on small children. Yeah, yeah definitely not. When we talk about reintroducing a species to the North Cascades, of course, I can't 
stop but think about the recent reintroduction of the mountain goat. This is one of two sites for the great goat move. They're hit with a net or dart before a person called a mugger hops out of the helicopter and loads them into a sling with a blindfold. Then they're flown into the processing area, a surreal sight as the creatures dangle beneath the aircraft. Do we know anything about how bears would be, grizzly bears would be introduced? I kind of doubt they're going to be introduced in slings <laughs> from giant helicopters and uh, the idea of finding a bear to volunteer or capturing a, you know, a pair of bears. Yeah. Seems very complicated well, to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, generally they're, you know, the the grizzlies would be brought in from a, an area that probably has a plethora of them and... A um, nearby area, is that the... Probably. I, would, I, would, I mean, you know, British Columbia and Alaska have the most grizzly bears of anywhere uh, on this continent anyway, and... So I imagine they would probably be brought in. I understand the Canadians also are reintroducing grizzlies and are talking about it in some areas there. Do we know how long it would take to produce a survivable population? I mean, how long? How how frequently do they breed? Well, what- the, yeah, I think I think they breed infrequently. In other words, I think it's a very slow process, of, and you know, of raising the young and whatnot. I think they're what may be the second slowest reproducing land mammals uh, here. The number that I saw that was intriguing to me was, you know, it might take 50, 60 years, but potentially you could grow a population in the North Cascades, so you got 10,000 square miles up there. You know, they could get up to maybe 200 or 250 bear population, which is uh, more than they have in Yellowstone. So the potential for bear reintroduction is significant. We're not just talking about, you know, three or four bears up there. We're talking potentially over a generation or two of, you know, hundreds. And and that would have a significant impact on the environment up there, probably mostly positive. As far as the relationship with humans, you know, wolves are another important part of the ecosystem. The reintroductions have been fairly successful, um, but there's the management issue of not letting the wolf packs get too big. And then you have farmers and ranchers who are dead set against it because it's against their economic interest. So it's controversial, but it's working. And um, it shows that it can be done. And I think that's partly inspired the thoughts about reintroducing the grizzly. If we can succeed with wolves, why not grizzlies? There's, you know, the two critters that are kind of at the top of the food chain. I think it also gets to the whole sort of man versus nature thing. I mean, we're trying to kind of have it both ways, right? The settlers and explorers and the fur traders, I mean, people come into this region and they create an economy in which animals are simply a commodity or an obstruction. You know, we we extirpated the beaver. We wiped out almost entirely the sea otters. Farms, Farmers and ranchers saw wolves, coyotes, and bear 
as threats. And it's a whole different relationship to nature than people, than indigenous people have had. You know, we want to live in cities and treat the national parks as zoos. We don't want to give up anything in order to have that excitement of being able to see the wild. But we don't consider ourselves part of it. Right. We, we, right? we, we want to go see it under our terms, but we don't see yeah. ourselves as part of this this ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the closest I've ever been to a grizzly was at the Woodland Park Zoo, you know, where I happened to be there one day, and the grizzly came right up to the glass. There was some water, and it was swimming, like, you know, practically as close as you are to me now through the glass of this recording booth. And it was thrilling. It was exciting to see, to be that close to uh, a critter like that. And I think those people at, uh, you know, Yellowstone National Park who jump out of their cars and try to chase a, gri- chase a grizzly with their children, you know, it's all part of this kind of, you know, manic kind of separation thing that we have with nature, yet trying to appreciate it in all the wrong ways. Is there a timetable for reintroduction? Uh, is it just, are the studies just being done no, what, what is the, the state of this process? The state of the process, as I understand it, is, you know, the, the studies and proposals are pretty much put together, and now they're collecting public input. They have to have people react to the work that they've done. And then the federal government, as far as North Cascades National Park, you know, then the federal government will make a decision about, yeah, let's do this or no. It's gone back and forth. Um, there have been secretaries of the interior who uh, weren't enthusiastic about the idea, and there have been some that have been, enthousi- you know, been supportive of it. So, yeah, it's kind of in the hands of the bureaucratic process. But you know, there are a lot of people in favor of it, and there there's some strong skeptics too. So, like everything else, it'll be a, a partly a political decision. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. 
Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.